So we're going to be looking at the rest of Jonah chapter 1 today. So if you guys would turn to Jonah chapter 1 and stand as I read. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 for us. And then we will look at verses 4 through 17 today. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the soldiers became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, Do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. You guys can be seated. Father, we ask You to to just meet with us today, Lord, through Your Spirit, Lord. ask You to give us understanding of this, uh, of this chapter in Jonah. Lord, help me to, uh, to communicate it clearly, Lord. And please give us understanding, Father. And may, may Your Son be glorified today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, just by way of review real quickly. Verses 1-3 through three we looked at a couple weeks ago. We remember the word of the Lord coming to Jonah the prophet, right? Saying, arise, go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh, Jonah, and do it quickly. Do it promptly. Was the command from the Lord that it was a a very clear command that God had given him and that he was to go and cry against this wicked city. For the wickedness had come up before me, the Lord told him. So he was going to go cry. And we talked more about last week that the only thing the text tells us is that he was, he was to warn them that in 40 days this place is going to be overthrown. And of course we know the story that, that much of the city repented, 
But that was what he was go, to go and proclaim. But we see in verse 3, But Jonah rose up, but he went the wrong direction. He disobeyed God. And it says he, 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 he rose up to flee from, or flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And I don't know if I, if I emphasized this last time, and I think we talked about obviously that Jonah was a prophet. He knew that he really couldn't flee the omnipresence of the Lord. But, but I think it was Sinclair Ferguson as, as I was reading this week, just really what that meant, fleeing from his felt presence is what he said, old, the old theologians used to call it, his felt presence. In other words, from the place of prayer, from the place of service, from the sphere of evangelism. He was just trying to get away from what God had told him to do. And so that's what he did. Uh, he rebelled. And so we talked about that, about what a, just what a privilege it is that we have, that Jonah had, to, uh, to go and, and speak to a, a city. Um, the words of the Lord. That's a great privilege, whether we realize it or not. We should realize that. And obviously, he didn't realize it at the time because of his sin. And, and, and so the, the reality is, is that he, uh, he sinned against God. He rebelled against God. And, but as we're going to see, guys, as, as I want you and I to see today, that uh, you know we can think of many characters in the Bible who have sinned against God. And, but, but God's not done with them. God is a sovereign God. God is a, He's going to accomplish His purposes whether, whether we rebel against Him or not. That's much of what we see today. But just by way of encouragement, before we, before we jump into verse 4, um, you know, you think, about, you think about Peter and his rebellion to Christ and, and, and denying Him three times. And, and you think about, and of course we see the repentance in Peter's life, but you think about that God wasn't through with Peter, was He? he I mean, He used Peter mightily. We, we talked about that when we were going through the book of Peter. That, that he, uh, you know, he restored Peter. He told Peter, feed my lambs. Told him that three times. And then we see Peter in his epistles. Or first of all, we see him in the book of Acts. Preaching the gospel to the, to the Jews. And, and God saving multitudes. So it wasn't the end. God was going to accomplish His purposes. And He used Peter mightily. Write the epistles. They ministered to us. All these works that these men do ministered to us. What about King David? His awful sin of adultery and murder. And, and yet we have, you know, because of David's... This, this is how sovereign God is. Because of David's disobedience... In his prayer of repentance, we have Psalm 51, for example, that, we, that, that, that God has used throughout the ages to probably convert, no telling how many people, and to minister to those of us who we, we may fall into sin and we see what a, what a true prayer of repentance looks like. And so God takes these things, these, these rebellions and these failures and these sins and he still uses all of this to accomplish his purposes, right? What does Romans 8:28 say? He works all things for the good of those who love him, right? For those who have been called according to his purposes, all things. And that's what we're going to see in this well, I mean through the rest of the book, but even today that God uses Jonah's disobedience in some men's lives that we're going to see. That's really, really glorious. And so, 
just, just kind of by way of introduction, by way of encouragement, guys, that the reality is Jonah did sin. He did rebel against God like we talked about last time. But as we'll begin to see today, this is not the end of the story, okay? It's not the end of the story for Jonah. And I just want you to know that not if, but when you rebel against God and you want to beat yourself up and you want to think, well, God can't use me. And, you know, the text doesn't tell us, but, you know, I would, I would, I would, I would think that maybe Jonah was thinking that at some point when, when we talk about him just wanting to tell him the, the sailors, just throw me in the deep. You know, some of it, yeah, probably was. I don't want to go preach to the Ninevites, but some of it may have been, I've blown it, so what's the use? We don't know that, but, but I know that from being a, uh, a human being, those thoughts go through your mind. You, 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 you blow it, you feel like you've blown it, and sometimes you just feel like, what's the purpose of going forward? Well, the, or what's the reason? The reason is, guys, God has a purpose. God has a purpose. He, he has purposes that He has decreed that He will accomplish, and He's going to use us if we'll allow Him. If not, He'll use somebody else. So the main point today, guys, that I took from this text, the rest of chapter 1, is this. <clears throat> so last time we looked at Jonah's rebellion, if you remember. And so the main point, the theme of this text today that I, that I want to communicate to you is this. As a response to Jonah's rebellion, the Lord graciously responds by pursuing him with loving discipline while accomplishing His redemptive purposes. So there's, there's other things we could take from this, this chapter, but, but this is what I want to take from it today. That as a response to Jonah's rebellion, the Lord graciously responds by pursuing him with loving discipline while, you could say, while at the same time accomplishing His redemptive purposes. And so in the introduction a couple weeks ago, we discussed the themes of this book being God's mercy and forgiveness and as well as His sovereignty over man and all of His creation. Do you remember that? And so today we're going to immediately see this in our text today. These themes. God's mercy, His forgiveness, and His sovereignty over man and His creation. So we're going to have two headings today. Two headings, two points with three subpoints under each one, okay? And so, it's this. We see the Lord's sovereignty, okay? We see the Lord's sovereignty in the, number one, gracious discipline of Jonah, okay? We see the Lord's sovereignty in the gracious discipline of Jonah. And we're going to look at three things under that gracious discipline of Jonah. We're going to see how God, in His sovereignty, graciously disciplines Jonah. And we'll look at three aspects of this. Number one is in verse 4, in the storm itself. In the storm itself. Look at, look at verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. So this wind was no ordinary wind. This, 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 word, this word hurled is real important. That, that means God... I mean, obviously, as we're going to see, God is in control of all the weather. But God specifically sent this wind after Jonah, after this boat. It was no ordinary wind. It was no ordinary storm. 
It was a very, very violent storm, as we'll see. And, and you, can, you can read about the same thing with the storm that Christ calmed with His disciples. A tempest. It was a very violent storm. And so this storm, like all storms, I think it's, it's uh, important to note that it, it wasn't by chance. Right? We, we know that, that this storm didn't happen by chance. Psalm 104, verse 4, He makes the winds His messengers. Okay? Flaming fire His ministers. That's real important to remember. I think, you, I think we all in this room understand that, that God is sovereign over the weather. So as we was watching these storms last night move up through Oklahoma, they're not by chance. Right? I mean, they're not, we don't know all the purposes that God has for why He sends the weather, but make no mistake about it, He is in control of every wind, every storm. And, so he, and he has purposes for them that many times only He knows. But we see the Lord's sovereignty over the weather. And it was used in this instance to stop Jonah, guys. He sent in this storm. One of the reasons is to stop Jonah in his tracks from continuing in his rebellion. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But he sends this storm. And I think we'll see it more as we go through the chapter. This is grace from God Almighty to Jonah and towards these other men. This is grace that he sent this storm. Secondly, we'll see. We will see uh, the gracious discipline of Jonah. Secondly, at the rebuke of pagans. At the rebuke of pagans. God uses these pagan sellers to to rebuke Jonah. And it's all, it is all God's loving discipline for His servant. Towards His servant. We see this in verses 5 through 10. We'll look at verse 5. It says this, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. We see Jonah in his selfish rebellion. He goes down to the bottom of the boat and falls asleep. Maybe he thought, the text doesn't tell us, but maybe he thought he had made it in the successful. It was successful in his fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now I just want to go to sleep. And I think it's a, it just it gives an appropriate picture or illustration of him that he continued, what does it say in the last part of verse 5? That Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship. It's just a picture of him descending downward in his rebellion. And he fell into a particularly deep sleep. He was oblivious to what was going on. This storm. And, he, and it's so important to remember this, guys. He would have perished in his sleep. Okay? God sent the storm, first of all. But also, God, as we'll see, He uses this captain to wake him up. And it's all God's grace. God, in verse 6, we're going to see, He uses a pagan captain. In verse 6, what does the captain say? So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. How is it that you are sleeping? You think about it. Jonah's sole reason for being on this ship was to flee from the presence of the Lord. Right? 
He's, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But how ironic that now he's woken up to be, to be told just to call on your God that you're trying to flee. Wake up. That was probably a nightmare for Jonah. You're waking me up and telling me to call on my God. I'm trying to flee Him. Think about it, guys. He had been summoned to pray by a pagan sailor, a pagan captain. It seems to be that this pagan captain was more concerned about people perishing than the prophet of God was. What a rebuke this must have been to him. Verse 7, it says this, Each each man said to his mate, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and it fell on Jonah. The whole idea of casting lots, it was a common method used at this time to discern God's will. There, There is some mystery to it, but it's a method that was not forbidden in Israel. Proverbs 16.33, the lot says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so in this instance, it said it fell on Jonah. And then in verse 8, just going through the text here, we see they, they questioned Jonah. They said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And then, and then Jonah answers them in verse 9. Listen to what he says in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So it was a great answer. It was a great answer that Jonah gave him. It was a good answer. It was a truthful answer. But think about what his answer was. His answer, it was an answer and a confession that betrayed his actions. Look what he says in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of Israel. He made the heaven and made the sea and the dry land. Yeah, it didn't match what he was living, did it? These men were thinking, you fear the Lord God of Israel? Have you ever been in a position like that, guys? Or maybe... Uh, Maybe you hadn't been living maybe in a way that would communicate in the best way that you're a Christian and then people find out about your faith. Maybe they oh, you're a Christian. And you go to such and such church and you know that your life kind of is inconsistent with that. It's, it's, got a, it's got a sense of humiliation, does it not? Your life doesn't match your confession. And by the way, if, uh, if you're ever confronted with that, don't tell them what church you belong to. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But no, it's a great confession. What does he say in verse 9? He said, I am a Hebrew. This term was used to identify, that the Israelites used to identify themselves to the nations, to the Gentile nations. This name descended from Eber, who was descended from Abraham. And so what he was doing by saying this, he was distinguishing the God of Abraham from all the false gods of the Gentiles, all the false gods of these sailors. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The God of heaven, in other words, who dwells alone in heaven. 
It's not one of your many gods. This is the God who dwells alone in heaven. The sovereign creator, right? Who made the sea and the lands. The one who sent this storm. In contrast to Baal, the sky god, which many of these men would have worshipped. And he says in verse 10, really getting to our, getting to our uh, sub-point, the rebuke of the pagans here. We, we saw the rebuke of the, of the captain, you know. Wait, get up! But now we see the rest of the men. Verse 10, Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So obviously he told them quite a bit what was going on. And what do they say? How could you do this? This is a rebuke from these sailors to, the, to, a, to a prophet of God? How could you have this knowledge of who God is? Right? This confession you made that you fear the God of Israel. How could you have all this knowledge and do what you've done? Don't you know they're thinking, our lives are in danger now. How could you do this? Even these pagan sailors understood the foolishness of disobeying and trying to flee from God's presence. They knew this. Again, what a rebuke this would be to this disobedient prophet of God. And the thing about it is, he can't argue with them. We don't see him arguing with them, but he wouldn't have an argument. You sit here and confess who you are and who your God is, and yet you're trying to flee from Him? God used the storm itself that we've seen so far. He used the storm itself as well as these sinful men in graciously turning Jonah away from the path of rebellion. And then thirdly, obviously He uses the belly of the fish in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. We'll discuss this more next week, guys. We, we talked about it some last week, being the sign of Jonah. And we'll talk about it more next week as well. But we see, what do we see here, guys? We see the lengths that the Lord will go to to stop us in our rebellion as His children. That's what we see. The, the fish, guys, just remember this, the belly of the fish is the grace of God. Jonah would have perished in the sea. But God in His grace, He sent the storm, then He sent the sinful men, and then finally He sent the fish. He will do whatever it takes. In other words, if we're not willing to humble ourselves, God will humble us. And sometimes He'll use a big fish to do it. Sometimes He'll use some very ugly circumstances to humble us as His children. He will humble us. So it's better to just humble ourselves. I actually think I've seen a quote from that this week. It may have been Paul Washer, but I don't remember. But it was one that, I don't remember who said it, but it was, if we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us as His, as his children. So it's always easier, guys, to just simply obey God from the very start. And so, so we saw the Lord's sovereignty in His gracious discipline of Jonah. I hope you can see that. This is the, this is the loving discipline of a God that is, that, is, that is stopping His servant from His rebellion. And He, and he finally 
uses a fish to swallow him up and get him back on the path. But secondly, we see the sovereignty of God in this account in His gracious drawing of these pagans to Himself. These, the gracious, His gracious drawing of these pagans. Why do, I, why do I use that word drawing? Well, you guys remember the text. Jesus in John 6, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. And I think that's what's going on in this text. Uh, most uh, commentaries that I read, theologians that I read, guys I listen to would agree that what we see here is God's grace towards these sinful men. Um, and I think it results in their conversion. But He does it. We see He does it uh, three, three ways here. His gracious drawing of the pagans. Number one, by the fear of the storm. By the fear of the storm. Back up in verse 5. It says, The sellers, so the Lord hurled a great wind, a great storm. Then the sellers became afraid. And every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. These men in fear, what do we see them doing? Crying to their gods. Crying to their false gods. But we see them crying in fear. These are probably men represented from many different nations on this, on this ship. Um, and so these were, these were sellers, guys. These were sellers who were, they were used to these storms. They were, these were very, very hardened, seasoned men of sea. They're used to storms. But this one was different. The language in these texts emphasizes that these men were scared to death. These men show, like all men, that they are inherently religious on the inside. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. People can deny God, but when death is confronted, when they are confronted with the actual reality of death, we see in this text what happens when faced with the reality of actual death, the truth comes out. It takes very little effort, guys, of our, of our almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful God to strike fear in the most hardened, roughest group of men like these sellers. It doesn't take much effort for God to put fear in men. And that's what we see happening. Matthew Henry says, God can strike a terror upon the most daring and make even great men and chief captains call for shelter from rocks and mountains. That's what Matthew Henry said uh, about this text here. And it made me think, his quote made me think of Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Listen to this. The kings of the earth. So think of the, think of the most powerful men. The kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's what men are going to do. What do all these, what do all these men, these people have in common in Revelation? They're unbelievers. They're those who have lived their lives in rebellion towards God. And when the reality comes, the judgment of God, this is what men are going to resort to. 
They would rather the mountains and the rocks fall upon them than to face of the wrath of Almighty God. And so the sellers, these sellers in this text, although they were darkened in their understanding, like Ephesians talks about unbelievers, they're darkened in their minds. They're unregenerate, but they understood the reality of, of the Creator. They understand the reality of the Creator. And so in their darkness, they cried out to their God. They cried out to their God. That's what we see these men doing. Crying out in fear. What else do we see them doing? That I think is very powerful in verse 5. That just, it shows the depths of their fear and the reality that they, that they love their life. They don't want to lose their life. That they, they're, they're, their life's more valuable. See, men can talk a big game, but when you're faced with death, it's a totally different picture. It says this, that, that, all, that not only became afraid and every man cried to his God, every man cried to his God. So that means every man instinctively prayed, but it says this, they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Guys, this is their livelihood. This is much profit that they're saying, our life's more important. They, they had in their hearts what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3, verse 11. The Lord has set eternity in our hearts. And these men know it. They know as Romans 1 and 2 says, the reality of God. They know this God. They don't know Him in a saving way, but they, they know Him, but they have suppressed the truth. But when death, when they're confronted with death, the truth comes out. And they're willing to part with material possessions if it can just... God can just salvage their life. So we see that, that, that the gracious drawing of these pagans, first of all, by simply the fear of the storm itself. Secondly, in verse 10 through 14, we see God's sovereignty in His gracious drawing of these pagans by the fear of punishment. By the fear of punishment. Starting in verse 10. And we'll go through 14. Then the men became... This is the second time we're going to see that they're frightened. In verse 10 it says, Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 10. The men became extremely frightened. Not only, the, not only because of the storm they were experiencing, but now, after Jonah's confession, now they have, they have a knowledge of who sent this storm and why He sent it. So this just heightens their fear. Guys, there's no doubt, as we read in the, in, in the Psalm 135, it gave, a little, it gave a little bit of background about the mighty works of God. These men had no doubt heard of the God of Israel. The God of Israel was famous for what He had done. Word had spread of how He had judged the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt and taken down that, that kingdom and judged Him with the plagues. Had set His people free from bondage in Egypt. Had parted the Red Sea. The works that He had done through Moses. The victory in the battles he had given through Joshua. 
as well as the land of Canaan and God and God driving out these um, these different enemies of Israel and also the mighty works of David and obviously many others these nations have heard of these stories so they would have had somewhat of an understanding that he that this God of Israel was a righteous judge think about this think about their mindset knowing that this is the God of Israel. This man, the reason we are experiencing this is because this man is a prophet of the God of, the, of, the God of Israel. And, and to do what he's done, for, God to, for the Lord to do what he's done, to send this storm simply because of his prophet's disobedience. Do you think maybe it was going through their minds, what is he going to do with us? If he's this angry at his own prophet, what about us? So you see their fear now. Their fear is growing not simply from a storm, but from God Himself and and the punishment. Maybe they're thinking of these kind of things. Does does God really, you know, if, 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 if He's that angry over Jonah just not going to Nineveh, what about me? Have you ever met people, guys? Because I, I kind of know who I'm talking to in here. But have you ever met people maybe that you spoke with that they don't maybe see, or maybe they don't, they don't see how God could think their sin is that bad? Just as these men may have been thinking about, wow, He did that because of Jonah? What's He going to do to me? Sometimes it's very helpful to understand, to tell a person and help them to understand, think about what God did to His Son on the cross. What do you think He's going to do with you if you don't repent? If He's willing to crush His Son under the wrath of God who was sinless, His beloved Son, what's He going to do with rebellious sinners who refuse to repent? So it was there in verse 11. It was their fear of God and His punishment, I believe, that kept them from immediately throwing Jonah overboard. Think about this. They found out, we're experiencing this because of you. Why didn't they just throw Him overboard? Well, I think, in verse 11 it says, so they said to Him, right? He, he, they found out the lot fell on Jonah. He, he told them who He was. They became frightened. And next we see in verse 11, so they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. It was the fear of God and His punishment that kept them from immediately throwing Jonah overboard. Instead, they asked him, what should we do? What should we do? And then verse 12, he tells them. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. So he tells them, throw me into the sea. And then in verse 13, However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. What do we see in verse 13? These men, after hearing his confession, right, that he was a follower of the God of Israel, that, or, or that He, the reason they're in this 
predicament was because of his rebellion and that he is a follower of the God of Israel. So after hearing his confession, after hearing that he was a Hebrew, and after hearing his instruction to throw him into the sea, what do we see instead? They wanted to spare his life. They wanted to spare his life. They didn't want to just immediately throw him into the sea because in verse 13, they tried to get back to land. They rode, it says, desperately to return to the land, but they could not. They could not because they ran in to the providence of God. God would not let them return to land. And so in verse 14, we see them It says in verse 14, Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Now although these men... Well, first of all, we see in verse 14, what's what's something different we see about these men than earlier up in verses uh, 4 and 5, I think it was. It says, Then they called on the Lord. They're no longer calling on their gods, but they are now calling on the Lord. And so although these men, they didn't have the law, right? They didn't have the law in stone. But Romans 2 tells us that all men have the work of the law written on their hearts. And so, do, so what do we see here? Jonah had told them in verse 12, just throw me into the sea. But these men, we see instead, they're trying to get back to land. To rescue Jonah, in other words. Not to throw him into the sea. So they understood because of the, law, the work of the law written on their hearts, the knowledge of God, the one true God written on their hearts, they understood that the life of man was precious in God's sight. They understood that murder's wrong is what they understood here. Genesis 9.6 it, it, it says because man is made in God's image. That's why there's a such thing as a death penalty for taking the life of another human in murder because, because we're made in His image. And these men understood this. Being created by God. And so in their minds, guys, let's try to get into their minds. If they save him, then they're going to die in the storm. Right? He's saying, throw me overboard and this thing will stop. So in their minds, they may be thinking that that if they save him, they're going to die in the storm. The storm's going to kill them all. But they also may be afraid that they'll perish, that they'll be punished if they take his life. This prophet of God. What's going to happen if we throw him into the sea? But they determined that this was the will of God. I think that's what the text is communicating. They determined that this was the will of God. Verse 14, read it again. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. I believe that they had determined that this was the will of God. And I think the text gives three reasons why. Number one, when you you combine these three reasons from the storm that was raised on His account. First of all, 
It was raised on Jonah's account. From the determination of the lot, it fell on Jonah. And from Jonah's own confession that this is why this was happening. And his, and his being a prophet of God, instruction to throw him in the sea. And so, I believe that's why they come to the decision to go ahead and do it because they determine that it's God's will. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Just by saying that statement, these men recognize God's sovereignty. They concluded that they were obeying God's decree. In other words, it was evident what God required. Listen to what John Calvin says, uh, kind of making this point. For as God demanded an expiation by the death of Jonah, really just a payment for sin in a sense, for as God demanded an expiation by the death of Jonah, so He designed to continue the tempest until He was thrown into the deep. And so we see, we see God, these first two points here, we see God drawing these pagans by the fear of the storm, and then by the fear of punishment. And lastly, and finally, by the fear of the Lord Himself in verse 15 and 16. So we saw them fearing the storm, then they're, they're, fearing, they're fearing God in the sense of, of punishment, but now I think it goes to a whole new level. We see the genuine reverence of the Lord in verse 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Verse 15. By faith, they were obeying God's will. At the consent of Jonah. Not against Jonah's will. At the consent of Jonah, they were obeying God's will. And also in this, also in this text here, we see Jonah in the midst of his rebellion being a picture of Christ. Giving up his life to save others. Only, the only difference was is Jonah, he did it to save these men from the storm that he had caused. Whereas Christ gave His life to save us from the storm of God's wrath that we caused. But it is, it is in, a, in, a, in a way a picture of Christ. It says the sea stopped its raging in verse 15. The sea stopped its raging. The text that I read out of Matthew chapter 8 in the Scripture reading, don't you know that the disciples, knowing their Old Testament, thought of this account? When Jesus stopped the waves, when Jesus rebuked the winds, no doubt they would have thought back to this story where the storm ceased. Where God stopped the storm. Right? What did the disciples say in Matthew 8? Who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey Him? And no doubt these men were probably thinking the same thing. That they threw Jonah in this greatest storm they've ever seen and all of a sudden it becomes calm. So we see in verse 16 the third time that they feared. But I think there's a distinctive difference here. I think it's been a progression. And it says these men, or then the men feared the Lord greatly. And then it gives us even more insight. And then they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
This was not natural fear now. From a storm, or even the fear of being punished. But this was a reverential fear. Worship is implied here, guys. They worshiped the Lord. They feared Him not only because of His power and sending this storm, or the fact that they were afraid after they learned who it was that He's going to punish them, but we see Him, we see them fearing the Lord greatly also for His grace and saving them. You see it. It says they feared the Lord greatly after He spared them. Unlike so many, right? So many will cry out to God in a time of danger. And God will preserve them. And what do they do? They turn back to their sin. But here we see these men in reverential fear and worship because they saved Him. They saved them. This is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for rescuing them. That's what we see here. Guys, is this not what we do as well as the church? Individually and corporately? We gather. Why do we worship Christ? Because He saved us. Because He rescued us. That should be at the heart of it. And that's what we see these men doing. Rescuing. Making vows. In other words, they vowed to be worshipers of the one true God. That's what that means. They vowed to be worshipers of the one true God and not their false gods. Really reminded me of 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Same kind of language. Really gives us a description of what repentance is. Paul says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's what these men are doing. They're turning from their false gods. And they're worshiping the one true God. Think about, think about the, the title of the message, the, the sovereignty of God in the storm. That's what we see here. Guys, what benefiters these men were to the providence of God. What do we see here? The providence of God. In his, in his providence, He used the disobedience of Jonah to save these men. Jonah was disobedient and got on a ship and fled to Tarshish. But the whole time, God is at work in His redemptive purposes. You see it? What benefiters these men were. They lost their worldly goods, did they not? Threw it overboard, but would they gain an eternal inheritance? This is all indication of salvation. This is all indication of God sending this storm to discipline His Son and to save these lost men. Beloved, I hope you can see as we've looked at this text today that as His child, okay, that you as His child, He will discipline you. He will go to great lengths to discipline you. And me when we choose to walk in rebellion towards Him. Remember what Proverbs 3.11 says. Hebrews has this kind of language as well. But Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof for the Lord or for whom the Lord loves, He reproves. Right? Even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. That's what we have, to, we have to tell our children when we discipline them. It's because I love you. 
And so God disciplines those whom He loves. He was going after Jonah. And as we'll see next week, the, the, the great fish that swallowed him, guys, that was not God's judgment. That was His mercy and His grace. So He'll go to whatever lengths to discipline you and I because He loves you and desires to use you. Guys, He, he doesn't need us, right? He doesn't need us, but He desires to use us. He would rather you and I experience the joy of obedience. Is it not joyful to obey God? But we have a, we have a flesh and temptations in this world where sometimes we make foolish decisions. And so God is always at work. God is always at work accomplishing His purposes, is He not? Always. That's what we see in this text. We see a very small window just how God works. Sends the storm you know, you read it, we all know it's because of Jonah, but yet he's working his redemptive purposes all along. Again, he doesn't need you and I, but he does desire to use us. The question is, is will we allow him to use us? And so his purposes are redemptive, lastly. His purposes are redemptive. Everything God does is for the good of his people, guys. Whatever God is doing in this world is for the good of His people, working in His divine providence for the salvation of those sheep who are still lost and for the sanctification of those sheep who have been found. For the salvation of the lost and the sanctification of the saved. Everything God does is for the good of His people. And sometimes we can't see that, we don't understand that, but that's what we can learn from this text and when you compare it with the rest of Scripture. And so, as a church, beloved, and as individuals, may these be our priorities as well. Okay, To see the lost saved and to see those that are saved discipled and sanctified. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your... your, uh, your discipline, Lord, in our lives. We thank You that, um, that, Lord, You are at work in our lives always. Always calling us back to Yourself. Lord, you, sometimes Your discipline is nothing more than the conviction of Your Holy Spirit when we sin against You, Lord. And when we repent, we're restored. So, Father, I, I just thank You, Lord, for Your inspired Word, Your text of Scripture. I thank You, Lord, that we can learn from the lives of, of the Jonas, Lord, and these men whom You used who weren't, were not perfect, who failed You, Lord, but You did not give up on. You continued to use. You continued to discipline. And um, Father, we thank You for the mercy that we see in this text, God, of, of sin in the storm and... Just reminding these men, Lord, of the reality of, um, of death. And God, You do the same in our day as well. We thank You for saving us, Lord. Father, we, we love You and we praise You. And it's in Jesus' name, Amen.